This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. I'm delighted to be here tonight to launch the Origin Speaker Series in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee. This gathering is intended to elevate the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and growers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish, shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses, and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that farmers and producers are doing in our area. The conversation is being held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Tonight's conversation is all about local meat, from the farmer to slaughterhouse, to butcher to consumer. And now I'd like to turn the program over to Dana Slater, the producer of the Origin Speaker Series. This is the third event in a series called Origins. It's a speaker series about the local food market, uh, food movement in the Chesapeake watershed area. And our first program was on oysters and aquaculture. Second program was on (coughs) produce. And our third program, which is all about meat and the local meat scene. And we have a great lineup of panelists tonight. So thanks for coming out. I wanted to introduce Mary Romeo. She's our facilitator for the evening, and I'm very grateful for Mary for volunteering her time. Very quickly, I just want to introduce the panelists, and then Mary will go in more detail as to their backgrounds. So we have Gretchen and John Dimling over here from Whistlepig Hollow Farm. They're just big farmers. <laughs> George Marsh, a butcher at Parts and Labor Restaurant. Scott Barrio from Hedge Apple Farm and the executive director of the Jorgensen Family Foundation. Very good. And Bill Ruppersberger over here from Old Line Custom Meats. Okay, so I'm going to turn the program over to Mary. And I also wanted to express my thanks to Hannah Reagan from Artifacts for all her help in coordinating uh, all of these events um, as we go. And our fourth one, I should say, uh, in, the, in our series is next month, April 23rd, and it will be all about adult beverages. Um, wow. And so we'll yeah, have. Interesting. <laughs> so we, we have a, a winery, local winery, Old Westminster uh, Wineries. We have a hops farmer. We have Kevin Addicts, who is the head of the Maryland Wineries Association, as well as the newly formed Brewers Association. And we have Corey Polyoka, who designed all the um, drinks at the, the original. When Woodbury first opened, Corey was the original designer of all the cocktails there. So it should be a great night. So spread the word, please. Thank you very much. Here's Mary. Hi, everyone. How's everybody doing? We're ready to talk about wonderful beef and pork and all those delicious things that we all love to eat and then a little bit later we're going to get to eat some of them so we're very excited about that but let me introduce our first speakers tonight what we're going to do is let them speak for a little bit maybe you know four or five minutes and then have questions immediately after for them and then we'll move on to the second third and fourth speakers so um please feel free to ask as many questions as you like and hopefully we'll be able to get to them so our first couple tonight are john and gretchen dimling who have as dana said whistle Pig Hollow, which is, I just love the name of that farm. It's just, just it evokes wonderful 
wonderful divisions. Um, they're a small family farm that's located in Baltimore County where they raise cattle and sheep, as Gretchen puts it, the way it was intended to be. Raising on pastures and doing their own natural thing. They call themselves a birth to finish operation where the animals are treated humanely or free from additives when they're brought to be processed. John's worked in livestock since he was 13. Started out after Purdue University at his cousin's farm. And then Gretchen says she's always loved animals and wanted to be a veterinarian and um, went to the university to study veterinary. Work, was working at Cornell in sheep research when John walked in one day with some cattle that he was, um, I guess, bringing. Sheep. Sheep. Mm-hmm. That would make sense, wouldn't yep. it? And that's how they met. And from there, it was love at first sight. And um, they got married and had children and, and started Whistle Pig Hollow, right? Um, their children are grown now, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. Mir- uh, Gretchen does work at Sinai Hospital full-time, but she says she loves to come home to her livestock at night, so that's really kind of exciting. So we're really thrilled to, to hear about what you guys do there. Welcome, everyone, and thank you again for having us here. This is such an appropriate place to have it here at Artifact Coffee, where Spike Dirty is really uh, known all over the United States for uh, promoting the Chesapeake and the local foods around here. And thank you for coming. I'm sure all you are interested in the origins of your food, and it's a huge movement now. Uh, people want to know where their animals are coming from and want to know your farmers. So, hi. <laughs> John and I are a whistle pig hollow, and um, as Mary said, I, I work out of the farm, off the farm. But most small family farms have to do that. Every, most of the farmers I know, one spouse does work off the farm to provide insurance and a steady income because uh, there's not too many farmers I know that could live just off the animals themselves. Uh, so uh, I do wor- work at Sinai, but I do love coming home, like Mary said. We are a small farm. We do farrow to finish. Farrow means birthing the animals on our farm. We've been doing this for about 30 years. We've been living on our farm, and we raise sheep and chickens and, like Mary said, a couple kids uh, <laughs> who uh, they were very active in, in 4-H, and, and that's what really got us into raising the breed of hogs that we started raising first, which is the Duroc hog, which is known for its fabulous flavor and marbled meat. John will tell you more about the other breeds we have. Um, Other things I want to say is uh, that we did find a small niche market in providing for restaurants from New York City down to D.C. We don't have a lot of animals, and that's how I want it. I don't want to be out all night rubbing everyone's belly, because that's what I do. I come home, and I make sure everyone's okay. Sort of like medical rounds. I make sure everyone's good and happy. I check on the piglets. I might play a little bit and do a lot of Instagramming. (laughs) Um, But we do pasture-raise our animals. They're out on pasture right now it's mud for this time of year but we give them hay give them good quality hay and um i think that's all i can think of it i'll let john tell you more about uh, what animals we raise what specific breeds they are heritage hogs and uh probably pigs you haven't seen before i do have a photo album with pictures going by and please you know if you have any questions later more than happy to help you with uh the breeds and and uh things like that any questions you might have on the photo album so john what kind of animals do we raise well what the heck is that woolly thing thank you dear for that question (laughs) it's always uh appropriate to let your wife talk first i think in these things it'll pay uh, benefits later on um 
but just to try and fill in some of the things that Gretchen may not have told you, we do have heritage breeds on the farm now, even though we started with Durox. We found out from the restaurants and the people that we deal with that there are certain types of pigs that taste better than others, and, and they are the heritage breeds. And I was a skeptic at first, but um, when I met this man next to me, George Marsh, he actually took the time to come out to the farm and looked at what we had and kind of guided us on what the needs were for the business we were entering into, and it's led us on a path down to raise some very unique pigs that are very gentle, very fun to deal with, very different from each other as far as their fat content, their meat, their muscling, their fiber, their, their marbling, and it's been an educational process for me in the last five years. We have about five different breeds of pigs on the farm from Red Waddle to Gloucester Old Spot, Berkshires. Uh, we have some Mengalitsa crosses. These are all very rare heritage breeds that are known for their flavor and their their uh, growing ability and hopefully their mothering ability because we have five pregnant sows on the farm right now. Um, we only have a total right now of 51 pigs at our farm. We're not huge. And that involves also having the boars there, the sows. We birth everything there. We raise it from birth to anywhere from 250 to 300 plus pounds before it's ready to go to market. So it's kind of an all-involved process. And at any one time, we have a little bit of everything going on so that we can try to keep a steady stream of animals, which is what restaurants need. It's not, you know, it's not a cyclical thing with them. They have customers every night. They need a steady supply. They need kind of a uniform product. And with heritage breeds, we've got a unique animal to try and fill that gap and fill those needs for the uh, restaurants. So it, it's been a fun, it's been a fun uh, ride, and it's totally different than what I learned in college. Because when I went to college, everything was make it grow faster on less land with the least amount of feed, with the, the lowest fat content, um, as cheaply as possible, and condense everything. And, and I bought into that when I, when I was in school. But since then, I've learned that these animals really need to be outside. They need to root. They need to have their space. And you can really tell the difference in the end with the product at the restaurant end. I don't want to exceed too much time. I know we're kind of limited. Do we have any questions for John or Gretchen? Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi. What's a heritage breed? Heritage how, how breeds, you you, there's there's a lot of different um, heritage breeds, and it's usually a breed that's been around for more than 50 years. So it's like an heirloom tomato. It's like an yes. heirloom tomato. Good. I always compare the heritage breeds to heirloom tomatoes because, you know, they look different on the outside, and they're different on the inside, too. Um, typical breeds are um, that we've raised also are large blacks, uh, Gloucestershire Old Spots. Herefords. Uh, Hereford, well, I don't know if a Hereford's been around 50 years. Um, Red Waddles. Mangalista. The newer breeds, uh, Duroc is kind of on the borderline and Berkshire, kind of border of, of uh, heritage. So the old time, the old time breeds. 
that some were almost extinct before they started bringing them there back. There are like several the Langoliesas that are extinct, several varieties of them. Uh, and they're usually lard hogs, and that's why they almost became extinct, because lard hogs lost popularities in the 50s when they started bringing all the pigs inside and doing farming that way. The, the lard hogs were not happy, and they wanted lean pigs. Um, in 1990, like, for example, the Gloucestershire Old Spots, there were only two in the whole United States. Now there's hundreds, um, and only because chefs demanded them. They wanted them. So a farmer up in Maine uh, imported, I think it was 20, 30 Gloucestershire Old Spots to the United States, and since then they've been multiplying. Um, we have a, a few sows on our property, and because there's so few, you have to really look for a good matched pair for breeding. So I had to go almost to Canada to get our boar, and he's related to the pigs directly in England. So he's not related to anything in the United States. Um, so those are the challenges of raising these rare heritage breeds. What kind of pigs do the Spanish use to make jamón de bellota? <laughs> and can you make that here? Uh, are those the Ibero- Iberico? Yeah. Iberico. Iberico pigs that they put in oak forests so they can eat the acorns. And it fla- the nuts actually flavor the meat and give that ham its distinctive taste. And I think they've tried that here, but the climate and the acorns are totally different than uh, Spain. We feed ours acorns. Yeah, we do. We supplement acorns and hickory nuts, and they forage. And walnuts. Another question? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Slater? <laughs> a, a little bit the devil's advocate, but the last origins we had, we talked about feeding lots of people. There's got to be a compromise between what you guys do and what is necessary to feed people. So if you were to ra- if you were to raise pigs more the way you do, what is sort of the minimum amount of property you need for a pig? If you want to give it, That's right. you're not raising it in a stall by the thousand. That's right. And, and another problem with the way we raise animals is that they're not on the same plot of land the whole time. We need a lot of land to... Sorry, we need a lot of land to uh, move their <laughs> move their move their pasture around. So let's say I say we need uh, you know one acre per pig. Uh, acres constantly moving. So throughout the year, every month, that pig's going to move. But we we can supplement that when we only have a limited number of acres to try and raise our animals on. We feed alfalfa hay. We can supplement what pasture they may not have in front of them. They still have the ground to root with, which I think is critical to a pig. They love to root, and they make the best rototillers you ever wanted to see. Um, but we supplement with hay, with uh, apples. I get spent grains from one of the breweries that's Pumpkins, just down the street, actually. Seasonal and whey, we get away. whey from dairies. So they get a very well-rounded nutritional diet. They really just need to be outside and and have some space more than anything else. And maybe to answer your question, we just need more small family farmers. We need to make it profitable. uh, Are we looking at 100 square yards for a pig? I mean, optimally, you want as much space as possible, but there are space limitations you have to compromise no matter what business you're in. Our compromises are you get to a point where you really enjoy what you're doing you're raising the pigs properly you can put hands on every day we see each animal individually twice a day several times a day you don't want to get too big where you get away from that because you lose control not you personally but 
as a system. Yeah. Could I comment a little bit? Um, Bill Ruppersberger, Old Line Custom Meat Company. I'm the infrastructure between the farm and the restaurant or retail store, so you have to figure that out. Um, I've, I'm benefiting very definitely from the local movement, no question. But my concern is yours also. It, it is a bit of an elitist movement. Most people cannot afford uh, a lot of the product that, that we, even we sell and process on our end. Uh, if you look at our country, we, we've been a lot of our success has been based on the fact that we've been very efficient in producing food, protein uh, in, in general. Uh, our spendable income is greater. You know, our discretionary spendable income is greater because of our ability to to, to process this food very cheaply. So there's the downside to to what you're what you're saying. I don't know if there is an answer to that. Um, I don't know if you can get. Are we going to get more people back on the farms at this point? I, I, my answer to that is probably no. So I, I don't know if there's an answer to your question. Well, this might sound weird coming from a butcher, but I think that uh, part of it might be that we just eat too much meat. Yeah. Uh, and we, we part of that. what I'm trying to do is to encourage people to maybe eat less meat but eat higher quality meat, meat that's raised by farmers who are doing things properly properly. Uh, and turning out a product that is really far more enjoyable to eat and, and deserves to be, uh, and, and it's possible that we're just stuffing ourselves full of meat that we're not even thinking about when we're eating it. You know, you should really enjoy eating a piece of meat and think about it when you're doing it, and, and possibly a, a six-ounce portion instead of a, a 16-ounce portion would be, you know, better, uh, you know. I do serve a big steak at the restaurant, so I can't. <laughs> it's for sharing. It's for sharing. <laughs> do we have a, a question, sir? Yeah, I do. To answer this gentleman, yeah, that I hear what he's saying about mass production of pork, which in theory people say is bad for you. However, if it's just a pure protein, we can do insects and have small portions of pork. <laughs> there you go. But I have a question that could be for them. A we'll get back to it, I promise. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so our next speaker, obviously, is George, who's already kind of started. George is the executive chef and head butcher at Parts and Labor. If you've been lucky enough to get to Parts and Labor, it is spectacular. Um, it is a full-service butcher shop, which you very rarely see these days. Um, I can remember as a child going to, the, you know, going to the butcher shop and you order exactly the, the piece of meat that your mom wanted to cook. George calls himself an accidental butcher. He started out in fine arts and industrial design before he really discovered he was in love with being in the kitchen. His first exposure to butchery was at the Maryland Club. After that, he worked at Salt and then um, Ixia before coming to Woodbury Kitchen in 2009. Then in a conversation with Woodbury owner Spike, um, they really started talking about how to find a use for meadow caps, which is a byproduct of the dairy industry, which began the journey that George took in understanding the importance of that whole animal butchery. And I think if I've heard the phrase that parts of labor that you're snout to tail. Is that right? Uh, well, you know, people say all kinds of stuff about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm going to pretend that that's what it was. All right. Um, so he really began to, to focus full-time on the butchery and breaking down the whole animals for Woodbury Kitchen and all of the other Spike Journey restaurants and has set up the restaurant's elaborate curing, smoking, and programs. So that's it's really wonderful. The idea for Parts and Labor rose from the need to streamline the butchering processes for all of Spike's restaurants. He's got three butchers and also manages the 84-seat restaurant. 
which hopefully some of you have been to, and hopefully we'll all get to very soon. He's really brought traditional butchering back to life. So, George, it's all yours. Thanks. So, yeah, like she said, we, we started the, the butchering over at Woodbury Kitchen, and we, um, we really did that because within the restaurant we had started to focus as much as we could possibly do on buying things strictly from local producers, people who are, or growers, people who are raising things in our area that we wanted to support. And we started taking a look around our kitchen and finding that there were things in the kitchen that weren't from our local food system. And over the years, we just started kind of knocking one thing off the list at a time. You know, instead of maybe olives, we were making tum olives from tons of green tomatoes that we were buying from local farms. So the idea was to put more money into the pockets of our local growers to really kind of develop this food system that we're, we're trying to work within. And meat was definitely part of that plan. I had been, uh, you know, cooking a lot of the meat that was going through the restaurant, and it was coming from local farms, but it was still boxed meat. It was meat that was coming to us in vacuum-sealed bags in the case, you know, say a case of skirts or a case of hangers or vacuum-sealed ribeyes. And after really talking with some of the growers that were around us, that you know, smaller growers, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for them to send me a case of tenderloins or, or a case of hanger steaks because that's many, many animals that have to die just to give me that box of meat. So for a farm that has, you know, 50 pigs or 80 steer, that just doesn't work. So we decided to start with this, this little meadow calf that you, that you talked about. Um, which was a response to you know, the fact that we're, we're using and consuming dairy every day. Why not start with an animal that, uh, you know, deserved to be utilized in, a, in the appropriate way? So we started with a small animal, a little veal calf, and I worked service that night and then kind of overnight broke this thing down with a little manual next to me uh, that had the little lines drawn in places where people wear the t-shirts these days but it was extremely unhelpful and that's kind of how I did it the first time and then worked my way through a couple of animals making sure that we were utilizing all the parts and we got better at it and uh, we ended up doing a couple of demos with some really great pig butchers which kind of opened my eyes to seam butchery which is the butchery style that we use uh, which is done almost solely with knives, very little sawing, uh, cutting between muscles to kind of showcase each muscle for what it does. Coming from a chef background, that really helped me to understand how to utilize each piece. And it it certainly wasn't something that came overnight, but over time we we got much better at at utilizing the products and making great products. Um, Definitely conducted a couple of extremely expensive experiments that didn't turn out, but that was part of the process too. So over time, we got to the point at Woodbury where we were breaking down all whole animals for our restaurant, and then we got to the point where we could supply uh, artifact, and then shoe fly came along, and we grew out of our space. We just knew that there was no way we were going to be able to continue butchering these whole animals in the walk-in at Woodbury that has lettuce and uh, dairy and shellfish and fish, and it was just kind of a nightmare as far as our space went. So we, we were really looking around town to find a space that worked for us, and we finally settled on the, the spot in Remington that we're at now. Uh, and, you know, I kind of got to design the kitchen and put in as much walk-in space as I could possibly ever imagine, or at least for a small operation like us, it's, it's definitely good. 
and uh, I, I really wanted to be connected with the customers coming in to be able to uh, be that in-between person from the farm to the consumer and be able to connect them in a way that uh, maybe they haven't before. And we kind of had some I, – I've kind of developed my own ideas as to what uh, – how meat is best. Uh, I'm sure over time I'll learn more and, and maybe say something different later. But we've, we found that dry aging the beef is really the best way to do it. Um, the flavor is way better. Just everything about the whole process for me if, as far as dry aging is really, really important. Not cryovacking the meat. And so that's that's part of our program too. And the the pigs that we've been so fortunate to get from people like John and Bo Ramsberg and uh, Will and Kent out at Whitmore Farm, they're just incredible, amazing animals that have the best flavor. Fat, yes, they have it. They're lard hogs, but that's kind of our job to figure out what to do with all that fat and how to utilize it in the best way because uh, that's that's part of what you're getting. That's kind of where we're at. Great. Who has a question for George? Once again, try to broaden it out a little bit from not just a local restaurant perspective, but is there is there any coordination between restaurants in like the Baltimore region when it comes to purchasing animals that are I guess specialty animals as opposed to you buy yours and you have to you try and use everything. But if you have 50 restaurants in an area trying to buy local meat, what happens? From my experience, uh, that I don't think it would be a problem at this point. I think there are a lot of restaurants buying local meat. Um, there could be a lot more. I have a lot of people coming to me trying to sell me meat, but I'm at the point where I'm taking and I've developed relationships with farmers that I don't that I that I like and I want to stick with. And I can't take on more, more pork or more beef. I've got people coming to me every day, handing me their cards, saying we've got you know, Berkshires out on our farm, or we've got you know, old spots, but I can't take them. So I feel like we've got plenty of farms in this area, uh, especially com- commodity farms that could be transformed into farms. Well, there's that- no coordination. If you can't take it, you you can't say but I know this chef needs them. I know a couple other people around town that are that are taking animals, but they're <laughs> buying from John. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> or Bo or Spore. Yeah. So they're you know th- these have been become some of the top top pig growers in the in the region, um, and you know it's, for it's good reason. Good point, though, that that- maybe should be considered at some point, that there's a little more collaboration. To, to stick my nose in again, I, I, the, the company's name escapes me, but there is a, a company now that is is trying to coordinate local farmers with restaurants. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the farmer tells uh, the company what they have, and then the, the company posts on their website what's available, and the, and the restaurants come in. and, like and order from that. Yeah, yeah. Who is that? I can't remember the name of. Uh, I, I believe it's uh, Jeff Smith. Yeah, Jeff. I believe it's Jeff Smith who used to run uh, Chameleon Cafe. Yeah, um, and that's. And that's I you know I can't speak too much to that, but I, I know that um, a lot of the small growers are a little reluctant to to start or to get into a, a, a co-op type thing because they're you know fending for themselves and yeah. you know I, 
I'm not one of those people, and I don't know a whole lot about how all that works. But uh, as far as the as far as taking in meat and meat, you know, there could be a lot more restaurants doing it, and I think that there should be for sure. So I think, um, you know, George, everybody hears the work that you're doing and probably thinks that it's so great. Um, but you and I and some other people in the room know that um, the challenges of it are real and are financial um, and might have something to do with why scalability of these practices isn't something that we're really seeing yet. Like, there, there are reasons that everyone is not doing this, um, having to do, I think, a lot with labor. Um, utilization, things like that, and I think it would be good maybe to talk a little bit about right, yeah. not only why it's good, but why it's hard. It's <laughs> extremely hard, uh, and it came, you know, with the expense of a lot of really long hours, and uh, did did not happen overnight. It's taken, you know, quite a few years to get to the point where we're at now, and we have a, a long way to go financially. It can be tough for sure if if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, Every single piece of an animal should be used, one, for respect of the animal, but two, because you have to be able to make money off of it. And understanding how to use all those products takes a long time to figure out because there aren't, you know, we're not coming from generations of people, maybe Bill, but but I, but I didn't come, and most cooks in the city didn't come from a long line of people who have been doing this for, you know, hundreds of years. So we're trying to find information on the internet or in books or, you know, take an expensive trip to go stage somewhere that, that you can learn, uh, but it does take time and it does take money, especially with the retail shop now at Woodbury. We got to the point where we were, you know, because a restaurant markup is different. And for restaurants, it's not nearly as hard as it is for a retail operation. A retail operation is incredibly tight. The profit margin is so much tighter, uh, and just breaking even is is a feat that we've you know, come to celebrate. But uh, <laughs> but making money is is on the horizon for sure. And we've we've started we've you know over the past couple of months with a lot of really hard work and focus um, have started to make a little bit of money, and and we'll continue to make that money and and grow the business to the point where you know we're we're highly profitable, but. Uh, it takes time, and, and you know that's that's definitely what, one of the reasons why people don't do it. But it also takes the passion and the 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 the, the, the desire to to do it. You know, it's it's long nights and long you days. Need to be a broader client base, more demand. The, uh, maybe, but the, there's definitely demand for the products and and. You know, one of the things that we've run into recently is that we don't want to be supplying meat only to the elite class of Maryland. We want to be able to supply meat to everyone, you know, for somebody to be to be able to come off the street and buy a local product and be able to afford it. And some of that has to do with eating less meat, maybe not eyeing up that 32-ounce ribeye that's in the case and go with something like a, a bottom blade or a flat iron or a, a skirt steak that... that are incredible steaks. You just have to be willing to take it home and try it. Same with a lot of the pork cuts. You know, we get hocks and and heads and things that people may be scared of, but those are the cuts that can be much more affordable. It's just a matter of understanding how to utilize them and open your mind to a different cut. Thank you, and we will do our best to uh, 
make sure the parts of are successful as much as we can. All right, I'd like to introduce Scott Barrio now. Um, Scott directs the day-to-day operation of Hedge Apple Farm, which is 310 acres right along the um, Monocacy River out in Buckystown, Maryland. Um, it's a permanent grassland, and they develop and demonstrate profitable and sustainable beef cattle productions for the Mid-Atlantic region. Scott is also the executive director of the Jorgensen Family Foundation, and prior to doing that, he was close to 20 years at the University of Maryland as the beef cattle extension specialist and the beef program leader, which just sounds so serious. But I think think George is going to tell us what that is all about. I asked him to um, tell me a little something really, really interesting and and maybe um, unusual about he or his, his farm here, and he told me that they are the only kosher cattle farm in the world, which I thought was really fascinating. Wow. So Scott, is all yours. Thanks, Mary. Uh, just a brief bit about Hedge Apple Farm. We are a conception-to-consumption operation, completely vertically integrated, and uh, we're the largest, largest grass-fed, grass-finished operation east of the Mississippi by far. We direct retail everything that we raise through a retail store on the farm, by the cut, by the pound. Uh, as Mary said, we farm with a mile of frontage on the Monocacy River, a critical watershed to the bay, so stewardship of land is as important as stewardship of the cattle to us. We produce a very high-quality product. It's been an interesting discussion to listen to. There's, in my view, uh, quite a bit of misinformation uh, regarding what is actually at the end of the day profitable for a farmer. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. We raise black Angus cattle. Bill harvests them and processes them for us. We get them back case ready, meaning cut, wrapped, frozen, and labeled to go into our meat case. And we sell everything in a 200-year-old log cabin that we rescued from Boonesboro, Maryland, and uh, took apart, moved to the farm, reconstructed Back to its original glory. George Washington, I understand, used to buy meat there. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a nice operation, and uh, we'd encourage you to come visit. I'd rather just take some questions. All right, questions. I'm sure you have. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start down here. Who's got one down here? <laughs> Cut them off. Question. I had always thought that a, a kosher cow is kosher because of the way it's butchered. Yes, well, yeah, Mary, Mary kind of cut a corner there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we have the only live, certified kosher, live cattle operation in the world. And it would take a lot longer than we have tonight, but I'll be happy to explain how that all came about to you later. But you're right, kosher, they're determined to be kosher during the slaughter, or the harvest process. Ours are a little different. That's why it's the only one in the world. You have non-cultural cows? No, we have no Gentile cows. <laughs> <laughs> they wear yarmulkes. All right, other questions? Anyone? All right, Mr. Slater. <laughs> no, it's not really a question. Yes, good question. No, I'd like you to elaborate on what you just said about the misinformation. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, we sell everything retail. We do not sell anything wholesale. Because at the end of the day, only one person can make any money. Now, there's a lot of farmers that sell their stuff wholesale, and in general, they have no clue about what their production costs are. I'm not referring to you. I have no idea about your operation pig-wise. I have no no pig knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) But I do know on the cattle side 
that 99.9% of the producers have no clue what their front-end costs are to produce a pound of meat. So, But they like to get stuff on restaurant menus because they like to be able to talk about that. But there is no money in that. I can guarantee you there's no money. We had a discussion tonight. He wants me to, George wants me to sell him cattle. He said $4 a pound is, is too high for hanging weight. I have $4.35 per pound in every piece of meat I produce on our farm, and we're probably one of the most efficient farms you'll ever find. Now, how do I turn around and sell that for $4 to George? It doesn't make any sense. So we could talk about the warm and fuzzy side of putting your stuff on, on menus and in restaurants and all of that. The reality is, when if I'm going to be profitable and sustainable, I have to be profitable. I'm not going to be sustainable if I'm not economically profitable, economically sustainable. And then, within that context, I'm also in, we're also environmentally sustainable. None of that's going to happen if I don't make money. At the end of the day, I've got to make money. So we, we have a system, and I was telling Mary this, that fits for us for four reasons. It's the right way to raise cattle. It's the right use of the resources we have available. It's the right product for the time right now, and it's the right way for us to be profitable. And that's what drives us. And we use our facility to train other farmers. We have tours, short courses. I speak more places than you would even imagine because our mission, part of a mission of the foundation, is to help other cattle producers be sustainable and profitable. And we have a model that will do that. That doesn't include being a wholesaler. That's where that comment comes right. from. Right. Yes. I have a question that sort of uh, ties in earlier. You sell all your, your beef retail. Do you sell the the unusual cuts? And you know, I uh, think of those in France. You know, you can get all sorts of things at the butcher shop shops there. Um, but for example, uh, I mentioned skirt steaks. Cheap meat is is really excellent meat there. So, do you find a retail market for that? Is, you know, we've explored different things. Yeah, ab- that are, absolutely. Are wonderful things that nobody really knows of. So how do you deal with that? We, we, sell, uh, folks? we, we sell almost everything but the moo. Uh, <laughs> mostly but we, what we don't sell is the things that Bill doesn't cut for us or that end up staying with Bill. But we sell, I mean, skirt is nothing. Skirt's just a regular, I mean, it's a nice cut. It's but a lot of, no, we don't, do, we don't do cheek meat or there's, you have to understand there's a certain economic advantage to Bill as the processor in what's called the fifth quarter. Is that correct? Right, correct. <laughs> so he gets some economic value by holding some of that back. And we, could, we couldn't get enough of it to really make it work. And this is something George said. I mean, it's like oxtail. you got one tail on the animal, right? So you're selling one oxtail per animal, sweet bread, some of that stuff. I can't get enough supply to really begin to promote it. To build the demand for it, but we do liver, we do heart, we do tongue, we do oxtail, hangers, skirts, bavets. No, we we can't keep any of it. If it's grass based, if it's if it's grass fed and grass finished, and I want you to understand, we feed no grain ever. We're 100% grass start to finish. We do not use hormones, implants, antibiotics, herbicides, or pesticides. So we're all natural, grass completely. If you sell a product like that, the demand for that product across all the cuts is incredible. 
We work with some CrossFit gyms, guys eat the guys and gals eating Paleolithic diets. I don't know if you know what those are, like the cavemen, whatever they ate. They take hearts. They take hearts. They take liver. They love the tongue. They take bone. You wouldn't. You would choke if I told you the number of pounds of bones we sell every week, because people making bone broth and drinking bone broth. So you know, you talk about George. You talk about using, maximizing the use of the animal. Everything but the moo, really. So I hope that helps. So, based on what you you're saying, it sounds like even though there's a, a, a big trend for farm to table, particularly when you're talking about beef. And a lot of restaurants want to advertise they have local beef. Is the is the day of reckoning coming when the farmers are going to realize they're losing money uh, selling to the restaurants? Well, you know, profitability is not the motivating factor for for a lot of folks. They like raising whatever number of animals on their whatever acres, and they're happy. You know, they work like you do off the farm they've got a secondary or third source of income it's a lifestyle choice it's a very complicated thing i can't as an educator go out and tell somebody i can't make those decisions i can only make the decisions that are economic that make sense so there's always going to be people that do that there's a tremendous push for what's called farm to fork right i call it fork the farmer because really that's what it does it asks the farmer to reduce their prices so that you can include these things on the menu. And I'm like, well, why don't you increase the menu prices and pay me what I need for my product? Well, well we can't sell it at those prices. We've got a 30% rule, and we've got to make a certain amount. And I'm not criticizing. You've got to make money, too. I've got to make money. So there's going to be people that give it away, absolutely, below their cost, and there's going to be people that push the pencil and don't. I think that's just the way the world goes around. And when George said that, that it's better in the restaurant arena, it is. There are margins they can afford to charge more in, in the retail and, and through Rosetta Beef, which I'll explain where we were involved with that. It, it's very definite that there is a price point that people won't go above, and it's very hard to get enough margin to make it work on a local level. That's exactly right. All right, to round out the evening now, we do have Bill Rippersberger, who we just heard a little bit from. Bill's a lifelong Baltimorean. He's a fifth-generation um, family meatpacking company that started in 1866. Started in junior high working there part-time and then full-time after he graduated from William & Mary. Then in 2011, the family business um, merged with Rosetta Beef, and we've all heard of Rosetta Beef, to form the Old Life Custom Meat Company. They've expanded recently by buying an existing processing facility and now have two plants. Bill says he's married with three children, none of whom he will allow to go into the business. <laughs> tell you exactly why that is. <laughs> Bill, it's all yours. For all these reasons. <laughs> what everyone has said before me is very much true, and I had a little bit of plan here, uh, which I'm going to uh, digress from a little bit. We are, are four, year, four years old. Um, we are operating two plants. Uh, one, the original George G. Ruppersberger plant on Pennsylvania Avenue in Baltimore City, which is the abattoir, and then a processing plant, which is at the end of Monroe Street, also in Baltimore City. Uh, I merged with Rosetta Beef in 2011. Basically, started working with Rosetta probably around 10 or 12 years ago. Our model's a little different. We're more of the gorilla in the local market. In, in the beef packing industry, we're minuscule. In the local market, we're 
the biggest. So not all the animals that we produce that are Rosetta come off of Rosetta Farm. Rosetta Farm is basically a genetic breeding operation. We take our genetics, we go out to cooperator herds in the area, uh, we buy their calves when they're born, and then raise them. Uh, and put them in in finishing lots. We're a grain-finished product, and I think one of the things I like to do tonight is try to educate people because we're very far removed from food production now. The misconceptions of of what grain versus grass finished is, we're a grain-finished product. The animal initially starts out on grass, and then at the end of its six months, it's it's a grain-finished product. When Ed Bruchel, my partner, who started Rosetta Farm, got out of the healthcare business when he retired, he got very interested in cattle, and wanted to know why beef isn't as good as it used to be. Um, he did some research. He ended up going down to the Y Angus farm where Scott was uh, uh, involved with. Uh, came up with a few criteria of what he wanted to do, and this and this is Rosetta's model. First of all, they wanted to go with the Black Angus breed. You you hear you know you hear all these different breeds, like you hear the the heritage breeds, um, Black Angus. I don't know if you've heard of certified Angus beef. It's supposed to be a higher quality. The only difference between black Angus and other breeds is that black Angus tends to marble better, which is a little flecks of meat in the fat, which makes it juicy and tender. So if you're raising animals and you want a high-quality beef, you'll tend to go with black Angus. It doesn't mean that a steak from a different breed that looks exactly the same won't be as good as a black Angus, but typically the black Angus will end up as a higher-quality steak. So he started with that. Secondly, he tried. He wanted to prove that by using genetics that you can improve the quality of beef. You can improve the marbling of the beef. And Scott knows an awful lot about that. Uh, between crossbreeding, uh, years ago, feed was very cheap. That's why they started grain feeding beef. As feed got more expensive, the farmers don't want to put as much feed into the animal. So uh, you use genetics to try to get the same quality as you had before. And then lastly, as George touched upon, that the dry aging is the, is the main difference now of what you're seeing in Scott's beef and, and, the, and the beef George uses and our beef and Rosetta. It's a dinosaur. Nobody dry ages. Years ago, the big packing areas of the country were out west, of course, and they were in the cities. There was Kansas City, Chicago, obviously. The cattle used to come into these hubs and, and were, were processed and shipped east in, in railroad cars. Essentially, by the time they got to the grocery stores, they were dry aged. <laughs> and by the time they cut them, well, in the mid 70s, I guess, IBP became a revolutionary country uh, company in the meat industry. They did a couple of things. First of all, they decided instead of being in the major cities, we're going to build the plants at the, where the source of the cattle are. So they started with that. Secondly, they um, the old the big meat companies in the past used to negotiate a master union contract so all the plants would negotiate one contract and they'd all follow the same contract IBP came in as non-union and and kind of blew those companies out of the water. The third thing they did was develop, and George was talking about the vacuum packaging, I'm going to explain a little bit more, they developed vacuum packaging of meat. So very inefficient to ship fat and bone along with the meat east in railroad cars. So they developed boning lines where they would take separate the muscles, vacuum pack the meat, and put it in boxes and just ship the boxes of meat, leaving everything else behind. Very efficient, but it didn't help the quality of the meat. We've lost that. Um, so we're going, we're regressing. We're going backwards to what used to be and, and trying to de- provide the highest quality meat that we can. 
The hard part of this, we, we dry age, all of us dry age whole carcasses, which is kind of silly. Uh, the, the parts that are really important are the middle meats, which are the steak meats, the strip steaks, the ribeyes, the fillets. That's a, a lot of restaurants will dry age just those pieces. George is pulling all kinds of pieces out of his carcass. So if he's pulling a flat iron out of the chuck, that's dry-aged also. It's going to make it more – dry-aging, two, two actions, enzymatic, which, which breaks down the, the muscle tissue, and evaporation of moisture, which intensifies the beef flavor. That's what dry-aging does. Um, minimum we Our minimum is 14 days. You'll see – 21 days, you'll see restaurants in New York do two months to the meat tastes like blue cheese. You know, it's, it's kind of where, <laughs> what's your flavor? I got you a know? ribeye that's 120 okay, days. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me off that list, okay? <laughs> it's, it's, it still looks good. <laughs> so um, we've gone back to that. The hard part, and when Ed Burchell realized when he was trying to, to figure out how we can make this economically viable – so strip steaks, out of a 750-pound animal, you get 15 pounds of strip steaks. You get 20 pounds of ribeyes. You get 10 pounds of fillets. So those are your money meats. It doesn't, you can't keep raising that price. So what do you do with what they call the end cuts, the chucks and the rounds that people don't cook anymore? A lot of it ends up going into ground beef. George has gotten more creative than that. The less you put in ground beef, the better. But Ed decided what would make ground beef better than what you see in the commodity market, dry aging. Uh, the commodity beef is one day after harvest, it will be spray chilled with a fine mist. It keeps the moisture from evaporating from the meat. There's a 3% loss in moisture in that first day from harvest to in, into the cooler. Uh, if you go to Sam's Club and you look at a piece of vacuum packaged meat, you see all that juice in it, that's that's... They're, it's great for the packer. It's not good for the meat. And, and I don't mean to disparage beef. The beef in this country, whether it's grass-fed or grain-fed, we have excellent, excellent beef overall. This is like going from, you know, uh, Velveeta to, you know, uh, an aged cheese. It's the same thing. It's, it wines. It's all the same thing. What makes it a little bit better? So we decided... Or Ed decided to dry age his carcass, so everything, all the ground beef would have the same flavor as a steak. Uh, it's expensive to do, but again, if we didn't get premium on the ground beef, the, the economics don't work. Um, so that's that's basically where we are. Um, again, we are in the same boat as everyone else. Economically, it's very difficult. We're kind of in that middle where we're not big enough to be efficient. We go to. Uh, we, we do. We go to directly to some restaurants, and we fabricate the carcass down. We, we, you know, restaurants can buy New York strips from us or, or fillets. We also go to uh, local restaurant supply companies like Fells Point Wholesale that distribute to a lot of the white tablecloth restaurants. What we want to try to do is be able to provide that restaurant. So, so a restaurant wants to have local beef, and it's very. You're not going to see what George does. That's 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 yeoman's work with he's what he's doing. You're not going to see very many restaurants willing to do that. But a lot of restaurants do want to do local beef. So, if a, if a chef wants local beef, we have become to a volume, just like George says, you know, one animal, you have two New York strips. You, you have to get to a certain mass before you can start doing this. But again, for us, our hard part is carcass utilization and, and making sure we make all the pieces and trying to figure out how to crack the retail market, which is, which is a harder, harder job to do. What do you do with the fifth quarter? 
the, the fifth quarter is, are called the awfuls. That's not A-W-F-U-L. It's O-F-F-A-L. <laughs> uh, it's the liver, the hearts, the, the hide, actually. Um, the hide gets uh, sold to, to tanning companies, uh, obviously. Everything else, you know, the, the one thing that's happened in the restaurant business, when you used to go into a restaurant, you would see, and on the beef line, you would see filet, New York strip, and ribeye. Then in the last, what do you think, 10 years, chefs started becoming more creative. And they found these different cuts, and they, partly because it was a cost thing. The three of those items became so expensive. So they found these other cuts. Unfortunately for them, now they've gotten very expensive also as they've become more popular. But even the off-balls have found a certain level of popularity that we can pretty much sell everything, the tails and, and the livers and the hearts. Um, um, trying to think uh some some of it goes dog food uh a lot of it probably more retail than restaurants very very little to restaurants so where retail the well kosher uh uses a lot of the, the the beef liver we're a kosher facility um that was our niche before we found rosetta that that uh, allowed us to compete with the big plants, and I'm now I'm not answering your question, but I'm kind of thinking of something. Uh, we're we're the the big plants in this country will kill 4,000 head of cattle a day, and, and harvest harvest, and they will. Uh, <laughs> I got almost through this. <laughs> uh, right? Okay. Um, we we do a hundred cattle a week. You know we're we're just absolutely minuscule. So um, it, it's easier for, for for us to move the offal. I think a lot for the big plants it'll go overseas. You know there, there's there's a market for all of it. Uh, again, the hearts have, have become popular. Uh, there are, there are a lot of popular items in the offals. Ethnic markets a lot of times will buy the offal. Right. It's humanely dispatched. It's humanely yeah. dispatched. <laughs> I have two questions. When you were talking about dry aging, you said something about enzymatic activity. Mm-hmm. Is it the enzymes that exist in the meat? Or yes, no, it's nothing added. added no, it. nothing's added. And my other question is, can you elaborate on the genetic components that you were talking about? You want to take... Maybe... You, will, you, will you handle this one, Scott? Are Scott, you, Scott. Are you just breeding the animals? Is yes, it's breeding. It, it's nothing It's nothing as far as cloning. No, it, oh, it's, no. Just, it's just a selective <laughs> it's breeding. It's just selective breeding. Yes, correct. Yes. <laughs> original GMO. I have uh, two questions. When we were in Ireland, uh, um, I was very negatively impressed by the uh, uh, meat, especially the beef. And I was wondering whether you know what the difference is. Whereas in England and other places in Europe, uh, the beef uh, uh, seemed to taste Fine, like American. Is there? Uh, yeah. The, the, and I hear you're saying American isn't great, but the uh, Irish really didn't taste. This this is this goes back to the the grass versus grain finished. Scott does just an absolutely amazing job with grass finished beef. It is hard to finish grass beef. Uh, to where you get good quality, it, it's a real challenge. Um, that's would you think that was that's and, and they're not grain feeding in, in Ireland. We're used to typically in this country grain finished beef, where where they, they get corn and 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 
and feed at the at the end of their life cycle. Stuff in Europe was probably imported from the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't taste like. It. Uh, my, my other question is about uh, kosher meat. Uh, isn't it uh, rinsed uh, with salt water so that uh, uh, it, it's really uh, a somewhat different? It, 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 it's a whole, yeah. It, it's a whole different. It's a whole different process. The rabbi is involved initially, and he determines whether that animal is kosher or not. Years ago, kosher rates used to be 75 percent. Then a movement came along called glot kosher, which is super kosher, which lowered the kosher percentages to 25 to 35 percent. One of the things that was interesting about Rosetta cattle, I was killing. Harvesting. <laughs> Three strikes, and I'll shut up. <laughs> um, harvesting commodity cattle out of Lancaster area, getting 25, 35% kosher. Uh, with the way the, the animal practices of Rosetta uh, insist upon, we average at least 50% kosher, which is extremely high in the industry. So from that first point, the rabbi determines whether the animal is kosher or not kosher. A lot of times it's, it's something in the lungs, uh, mostly more respiratory issues, if anything else. If the animal's ever had a respiratory problem, it w- will not end up being kosher. From that point, only the front half of the animal is used, the, the forequarter, because all the veins in that meat have to be removed. Obviously, you've got more veins in your, in your legs than you do in, in the front of your body, so they can use the hindquarters, but by the time they pull the veins, it just rips everything to shreds. So typically in this country, they don't do that. From that point, the meat is soaked for a half hour, and then it is salted for an hour, and that all is for religious reasons to draw blood out of the, out of the meat and then rinsed, and then it is called koshered, and then it's ready to go into the in, – and this is mostly in the orthodox market. You don't see um, conservative or reform typically keeping kosher anymore. It's a very small percentage of the market. So with the kosher meat uh, uh, that you sell or you sell, it, uh, does it go through all of this process? Or? I, I, we do that in our plan also. A lot of our kosher meat goes to New York. Uh, again, with the Rosetta cattle, there's a gentleman up there who's looking for the higher end of, of the kosher market, and New York is where that market is, so a lot of it goes up there. Our, our kosher lamb goes up there also. Um, there, there's a, a large Orthodox community in Baltimore, too, which, which um, uh, we sell to, but a lot of it to New York. Do we have any other questions for any of our panelists? I can just ask them, what, what happened to your sheep? You, 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 only, you just do, you didn't, you didn't mention yes. your sheep oh, we, at all. We didn't talk about our. We have eight ewes, <laughs> which uh, only gives us about sixteen lambs, fifteen, sixteen lambs a year, and they go to local um, restaurants. Uh, George has taken some of our lambs. We have a very nice restaurant in D.C. that takes them, and our our niche market is the fact that we raise our animals as any farmer would, and the restaurants we deal with take the entire animal. We do not have to deal with any cuts, any parts, nothing. George, I, I take the animal to a butcher shop where it's harvested and inspected, and then I actually deliver it from that butcher shop directly to the restaurant, typically like you would see a, a roaster if you've ever been to a pig roast. It's in halves because it's a 300-pound animal at times. And then they do the entire breakdown from there. That's my best spot to be because I don't have to deal with any leftover parts, any offal, any any cuts that don't sell. And so, do you ever and, do, do you have mutton 
Does yes. anyone have a... You, we sell mutton and lamb, okay. and, and that's sold yeah. the same but, way. As I want your card. <laughs> <laughs> the mutton's awesome. Uh, it's, it's hard to sell because people don't like the word mutton, but the mutton that I've gotten from John was... Better than any of the lamb that that I've had. The yeah, mutton, our mutton the chefs awesome. love the mutton. What is yeah. mutton? Old lamb. Old sheep. Well, there's there's you have to cover all that. It's very it's very much. Well, Bill can tell you that the, the difference is there's a joint there's a joint uh, I call it the break joint. Right. There's a joint in the front leg of sheep that when they're young enough and they're harvested, it'll break when it's calcified is considered mutton. Mm-hmm. So if it, if it breaks, it's it a lamb. It has on it. Yeah. Back to your question about the restaurants, and, and we try to facilitate a little bit if, if we can. When we, one, of our, one of the reasons for opening our plan also is there is a serious lack of infrastructure for, for this kind of activity anymore. It's all out west, especially in the beef market. You know, we, we, there's a couple of uh, big plants in Pennsylvania that are, are too big, are owned by the big companies. But in general, there's no infrastructure left. So you have consumers, whether they're restaurants on one end that want this product, and you have farmers who want to sell it to them. But there's this log jam in the middle. So one of our big things is we love to custom process. And as part of that, we try to facilitate if we can help. I've tried to sell Scott's beef, but he always shoots me down. Um, but we do try to facilitate a little bit, you know, this between the farm in the table. Yeah, so I think my question has a little bit to do with that, which is about like where where does the where do we need to find the value? All of these things seem to be the right choice. And I I guess my question is like where do we find the way for it to work? Like why is it so hard to make all these things that seem like best practices work? Is it just that people want something cheap or is it is there something else to it I, I think it's gas that's like gas prices people always want cheap gas and, and the, the problem is all of us to get each, each step of the way none of us are efficient in what we do we can't can compete with the big guys if the bigger guys were more expensive and what they produced it would be a lot easier for us I don't think that's ever going to happen it's expensive to raise cattle the way Scott raises them and the way their, their hogs are raised. It's expensive for me to process them because I don't have the efficiencies of the big plant. It's expensive for George to cut it up in his place. There's a gap between commodity pricing and our pricing, and there's still a ceiling here. So that is the you know $100,000 question. I think there's some component that has to do with, like, education. I think if you can get people yeah. to eat it for the first time well, and get them to understand, like, we ha- I think that the perception has to change about what the value of these things are or, or you know, it's never going to make sense for John and Gretchen to have 50 hogs. We want it to make sense for them to have 50 hogs, but it, it doesn't unless you, like, help people understand, I think, a little bit about why it's more valuable. And I think this paleo movement is one of the things. I People want to know that their animals were raised responsibly, humanely, the way animals should be raised. And I think that's part of the education. I actually am paleo now also because I have all this pasture animals that I have in my freezer. So um, I think that's part of the maybe a start of the movement. And I actually have um, a lot of paleo people approaching me for lard. Pasture-raised lard is huge where maybe two years ago, I couldn't give it away. Now I have people knocking on my door, uh, can I get some of your lard? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think we're on the right path. I think it's all a, a learning process, and we're in the middle of that right now. And it's what George said, where 
you may not want to eat so much meat because rarity sometimes makes things more valuable. And so a good piece of meat surrounded with the greens that you guys do and the starches and, you know, the other parts fill you and fill you comfortably and exquisitely where you don't need a big sausage or you, you know what I mean? <laughs> So I feel the need to inject reality again. <laughs> the, the reality is that this will never, ever be more than a niche. We will never feed the population of this country in this type of production. Americans want meat that they can afford, that's safe for their families to eat, and fits in their budget. There is a niche that will pay more, whether they're paleo, whether they're whatever. They will always pay more for it. We will never be more than a niche. We mm -hmm. can't be. And let me give you an example. We have seen an explosion in farmer's markets. Would you agree? Yeah. There's a farmer's market on every corner. At least I think so. Mm -hmm. We get invited all the time. First question I ask, is your farmer's market juried? Do you know what that means, juried? It means, do you go out... What's that? Is it really from? Yeah, do you go out and check out the farm before you allow them it? 99% of them are not juried. So now we have a new cottage industry where small meat packers will sell wholesale meat to whoever, and they will cut it and wrap it and label it with, you know, Singing Bird Farm in Upper Co, Maryland. And then Mr. Singing Bird Farm and his wife or kids will go to the farmer's market and they will sell it. Never raised it. Have no idea where it came from, how it was raised. And they take advantage of a public that wants to think that they're eating healthy. They're not. But the economics of the farmer's markets drive this stuff. And eventually that is going to explode. We just saw a guy out in Washington County, 120 counts of animal cruelty who was one of the biggest sellers at farmer's markets, Frederick and, and uh, Silver Spring Market, um, College Park Market. And the man just pure abused his animals. Nobody ever went to the farm to check it out. This is what's out there. There are very few people that are doing it right. And so when you look at what's available, actually produced the way you all think you want it produced, it's a tiny little drop in a huge ocean. And it will always be. That's just the reality. So since we know they're capitalists and they're crooks, we just give up and don't try? No. no. Or do we bust them? I mean, I think think when, when they started labeling, the large manufacturers hated labeling. When you realize that your pork chop was 20% saline solution, yeah. it should, and people do, do read that. It does have an impact. I agree. I agree. I mean, what I'm saying is there's information and education that has to take place. You don't and there give will up. always be thieves. Exactly. Yes. You don't give up. Beware. But the, the point is, there aren't that many producers out there doing it like this. The supply isn't there. It's not going to be there. The, the, big, the three biggest meat packers in this country control 85% of the market. Smith it's Miller, it's Budweiser, it's, it's like microbreweries, yeah. Yeah, yeah Smithfield does not make that many original Smithfield ham, right? right. 50,000 a year. <laughs> the rest are not. I know that, but. I think George had an excellent point earlier, though, that really, you know, as Americans learn that supersizing isn't always better. If you take the European model, you go to France, you get small portions, you enjoy a small amount of meat, and, and that may be a way to, to help if people get used to smaller sizes. Uh, but even if you cut the size, the portion size in half, 
the supply is not there. Yeah. Well, it's not, just not it's there. Not, it's not going to be able to it's feed everybody. It's not going to get there. When you want to pay $4 for my stuff that cost me four thirty-five, how can we work together? We can't. How can I supply what you have a demand for? I can't. Realistically, economically, at the end of the day, I just can't. Only one of us is going to make money, and it's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a final question. Yeah, here. Just an observation. Somebody, uh, one of the, one of the uh, panelists said something about, made a comparison to Americans wanting cheap gasoline. Uh, and I think the, uh, the analogy can be extended with that because gasoline is cheap because it does not pay its environmental cost. And uh, mass-produced... You know, Cargill-fed uh, beef is cheap because it does not pay its environmental cost, and it doesn't pay its workers, and it doesn't pay its way. Um, now, how to fix that, I'm not a politician. It's well, a good analogy. We will all just pay the cost eventually. Yeah. It'll happen. So. All right. This has been fascinating. I've learned a lot. I'm sure everyone has, too. Um, and I'll certainly be a little bit more aware of how I'm buying things, especially at farmers markets, which I'm a huge proponent of, but but uh, being maybe a little bit more careful. Thank you all so very much. Thanks again for joining us tonight at Artifacts for our Origin Speaker Series. With thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Lou Mann, Mark Eldridge, Dennis Greensfelder, and Dakota Keaton from the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.